0: Good morning and welcome to Inside Maine. My guest today is uh, Senator George Mitchell, former majority leader, senator from Maine, uh, federal district judge, a guy who voted on a lot of Supreme Court nominations, was majority leader when several of them were, were considered. And uh, therefore, I think, uh, George, we can put you in the category of expert on this, on this subject. I, I qualify you as an expert. Give me your thoughts on on what's going on now, the idea that uh, some of the folks in the Senate don't even want to talk to uh, Merrick Garland, let alone have hearings or a vote.
1: I think it's very unfortunate. Uh, It's been a long downward spiral extending over the past half century on the handling of all judicial nominations, but in particular Supreme Court nominations. And in that process, both parties Uh, have acted in a way that is inconsistent with the the senator's duties, inconsistent with the Constitution, uh, and very regrettable. It began uh, during Lyndon Johnson's presidency when he uh, nominated Abe Fortas, then a sitting justice, to be be the chief justice. The Republicans, for the first time on a judicial nomination, certainly in modern history, threatened a filibuster and Fortas eventually was denied the uh, chief justice position, as always happens, of course, when one side uses a tactic, when the circumstances change, the other side adopts it. And so both sides went back and forth in this continuing downward spiral that has now reached a new low, uh, when for the very first time in American history, to the best of my knowledge, uh, a Senate uh, majority refuses even consider a nomination, even to meet with the uh, president's nominee. Uh, I think it's very unfortunate, and uh, uh, I hope that uh, the Republican senators uh, will do the right thing, which is to consider the nomination. They're free to vote against it if, after hearings and debate, they conclude that the nominee is not qualified. I don't think that's the case, but nonetheless, they could make that judgment and vote. But to deny even consideration, even seeing him, even having a hearing is a first, and I think a very unfortunate further step downward, which will lead to others reacting in the same way in the future. Uh, For example, Angus, if it makes sense to say that no one should be considered in the fourth year of a president's term, Why would not someone in the future say, well, maybe we shouldn't consider anyone in the third or fourth years after the midterm elections? Well, it it bears just as much lack of logic as does the current argument. And so I think you're going to see a continuing downward spiral. Uh, I tried once to stop this, reverse the spiral. It obviously didn't work. Uh, I think this is a very, very bad practice. And I hope that it will be changed before
0: the end of this year, well, tell me about you, you. You refer, I think, to the Clarence Thomas nomination, which was certainly highly controversial. Tell me about that experience and your role, and what the what the Senate a- ended up doing on that.
1: I was the Senate Majority Leader at the time, and uh, President Bush uh, nominated uh, Clarence Thomas. There was uh, a great deal of uh, controversy about uh, his nomination, uh, a whole range of issues. Uh, personal, political, uh, a lot of it dealing with whether or not he was in fact qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. After all of the debate and discussion, and it was quite extensive, the hearings were very long and controversial, uh, about, not about, specifically, uh, 52 senators had announced they would vote for him, and 48 that they would vote against him. As you know, Angus, and as most of your listeners know, uh, in the Senate it takes only forty one Senators to prevent a vote from occurring through a filibuster. So there were more than enough votes to prevent a vote on Clarence Thompson's nomination and thereby to deny
0: him the
1: seat on the Supreme Court. Well well you at, you at, voted
0: at, against him you voted against him, didn't you? And you were Majority Leader, did. why, didn't you, uh, why didn't you invoke a filibuster and you could have killed it?
1: I was asked to do that. Indeed, I was strongly urged to do that by several of my Democratic Senate colleagues and a whole range of these outside groups that are uh, advocates one way or the other, as you know. Uh, and I resisted that pressure. I said that I felt uh, that the president ought to have the right to a vote on a nominee of his choice, uh, the Constitution mandates the president to make a nomination. It mandates the Senate to advise or and consent or reject that nomination. And I thought, I said, then we've been in a downward spiral for a long time on these judicial nominations. It's about time someone did the right thing, and maybe that will break this downward spiral and we'll get back to dealing with this in a proper way. So I insisted that a vote occur. It did occur. The vote was 52 to 48, and Clarence Thomas took his seat on the Supreme Court, which he now holds. Unfortunately, uh, what I hoped would happen did not happen. And as soon as the dust cleared and another nomination came along, uh, we returned to the uh, downward course of action, which, as I said, has now led us to the point where, for the first time in American history, the United States Senate will not even consider A nomination for the Supreme Court by the
0: president? Well, I was talking to someone the other day and uh, some Republicans, as a matter of fact, and I I said, I don't really understand the strategy from a political point of view, because they could have held hearings, considered the nomination and voted against it. And they wouldn't be in this position of trying to defend uh, not even talking to the guy. I mean, I don't understand the decision from a political point of view. Do you think it was taken so quickly before they even had a chance to consider it, or how did they get themselves into this box?
1: Well, I think the decision was taken much too quickly. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the uh, Senate majority announced uh, this decision uh, within an hour or two after Justice Scalia died, which was inf- unfortunate in and of itself. Uh, I think the calculation, though, Angus, is purely political. While the public opinion polls show that A majority of Americans, a substantial majority of Americans, believe that the Senate should consider the nomination of uh, Judge Garland, and a majority believe he should be uh, approved. Uh, As you know, the country's pretty much polarized. Maine is a state where we elect both Republicans, Democrats, and of course also in your case, independents, but there are many states that are overwhelmingly one way or the other. And I think for many of the Republican senators representing solidly Republican states, the, the, major, the national majority probably doesn't apply. So I'm not sure they take any political risk. The other mm-hmm. argument for doing it is it was, I think, the fear that the president would nominate a clearly well-qualified person, a moderate, someone who's widely respected, been approved by the Senate, praised by Republican senators in a prior case, and it would be tougher to vote no on him uh, than would ordinarily be the case. In other words, the vote would be seen as purely partisan. And ironically, that's exactly the point that Chief Justice Roberts made in a speech just a, a short time ago that only recently came to light, that the voting has become increasingly partisan as opposed to focusing on the qualifications of the individual nominees.
0: And the nominee Merrick Garland meets the meets the the list of criteria that you just mentioned. Uh, not a strong ideologue, a consensus builder, long history, and half a dozen or so of the Republicans who are currently in the Senate voted for him when he was confirmed for the uh, uh, Circuit Court, and and praised him uh,
1: at the time. Uh, that's why I think they're they've adopted this strategy, which has. Uh, obviously weaknesses of its own and is subject uh, to a lot of criticism. But I, I think the worst thing, Angus, is that it just extends this continuing downward trend of actions with respect to traditional nominations. And obviously, the next time you get a Republican president who has a nomination, you're going to see references to this uh, by Democrats. Uh, I, I think it's very unfortunate. There, there, there are very few tasks that a president and members of the Senate have that are more important than who is nominated and who is approved by the Senate to sit on the Supreme Court. And to have that important task muddied and obscured by all of this political back and forth, uh, it, it's degrading, I think, to the court itself, and I think most Americans uh, intuitively sense this isn't the way
0: we should be picking
1: these judges.
0: And and I should mention, I think we should uh, uh, mention that uh, my colleague Senator Collins is one of the few Republicans who's spoken out and said, yeah, I want to meet the guy and understand what his qualifications are. I think sometimes it's uh, that, that, as you know, the, the pressure inside of the caucus is always uh, intense. And for her to take that position in light of this very firm position by the majority leader and other members of the caucus uh, took some guts, frankly.
1: I, I agree with that, and I commend Senator Collins for that. It, it, it is such an obviously common sense position, and I think <laughs> yeah. if Maine, if the people of Maine have any quality that we're proud of, is that Maine people are common sense. They're, they're not; uh, most of them are not intensely partisan one way or other. There are some, of course. But uh, I think most look at things from a practical, pragmatic, common-sense point of view, and to, to say that you're, going, you're not going to even be willing to talk to a nominee for the Supreme Court, even though the Constitution charges you with the responsibility of evaluating that person, I, I think it's the right thing to do, and I'm, I'm glad Senator Collins is doing it.
0: Well, I have to tell you a funny story on that, on that line. Uh, Susan Collins and I both sit on the Intelligence Committee, and the Intelligence Committee holds its hearings generally uh, in uh, their closed hearings because they we're talking about a lot of national security things. But in any case, one day she was arguing for an amendment in the committee that she was supporting, and the senator who was sitting next to me leaned over and said, "Is there something in the water in Maine that gives people common sense?" And I took <laughs> that as a as a huge compliment for me, for Susan, and for Maine. But it was that's an absolutely true story. I. I I just loved, uh, I loved hearing that, and, and uh, uh, that was, uh, uh, as I say, that was a compliment for, for uh, certainly for Maine, I, I hope. Uh, well, let, let's take a break, uh, and we're going to come back to this topic and talk a little bit more broadly about uh, the constitutional obligation and, and uh, what's going to happen over the next several months. Uh, stay with us on Inside Maine. I'm back with uh, Senator George Mitchell on Inside Maine. We're talking about the current controversy about the Supreme Court uh, nomination of Merrick Garland and the position of the Republican majority in the Senate to not uh, not hold hearings, not discuss or debate the nomination, not, and many of the senators have said they won't even meet with the, with the candidate. Uh, one of the provisions, and you touched on this, George, is the idea that a president in the fourth year of the presidency can't, uh, shouldn't be able to nominate somebody. Of course, we know historically that's not true. But the other thing that's frustrating to me is the term lame duck is being thrown around rather loosely. And uh, as I understand that term, a lame duck president or governor or senator is somebody in office between the election and the swearing in of their successor. But the last year of your term is not a lame duck. The Constitution says your term is four years, not three years and a couple of months.
1: That's right, Angus. It's a misuse of the term lame duck, an extension of it beyond its original or actual meaning. Uh, The argument of the opponents, of course, uh, which is intended to appeal to Americans, is that the American people should have a say uh, in this nomination. Uh, But that's really a deceptive argument because the American people have had a say in it. Sixty-six million Americans voted for Barack Obama they all thought they were getting a full vote, not three-fourths of a vote. If you'd said to an American then, uh, if the president's powers extend only for three years, not for four, every one of them would have been surprised and shocked to hear that. And yet that's precisely what's being advocated by the president's opponents, that with respect to one of the most important uh, and, and significant over the long-term decisions that he will have to make, or any other president, uh, that he doesn't have any authority. And, in effect, the, uh, the Constitution has been negated for the fourth year uh, of a presidency. It's kind of a well, shocking it, concept.
0: Well, and, and if you applied it to the Congress, then one-third of the Senate and the entire House of Representatives would today be lame ducks, and by that argument shouldn't be voting on anything that's important.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, as I said at the outset, uh, Democrats and Republicans have taken what I think is the wrong uh, position on this uh, over a long period of time. Each side comes up with a new negative weapon. And, of course, as is the case in all conflict, uh, the once a weapon becomes used, everybody uses it, including the other side, and nobody's able to break the downward cycle. Uh I I think as I said earlier, uh it's very unfortunate. I think for the Senate itself as an institution, as you know, Angus, you're a senator and the rating of the US Congress and the American people now is about thirteen percent favorable. Uh yeah, we and can't figure out
0: we we can't figure out who that thirteen percent is. We think it's only our friends and family. Yeah, well,
1: uh, it, it, and it's, it's this type of action that denigrates the Senate in the, in the minds of people and the House of Representatives. It's a cumulative effect, of course. Not any one action creates this, but but it, it contributes to the feeling that uh, the Congress is dominated entirely through the political process, uh, by the political process, and not by any substantive responsibility either to the people who, who, of Maine who you and Susan represent, or the people of the country who you also represent?
0: Well, I think you're right to point out that there's there's plenty of fault on both sides here. I mean, there are quotes being thrown around in this debate by Joe Biden saying that a justice shouldn't be approved in a presidential election year. I think Chuck Schumer said something similar in 2007 or 2008. So and that's been, frankly, as I've you know, been there now for a little over three years, one of the things that surprised me, on both sides is a sort of lack of, of uh, I don't know whether it's awareness or realization that whatever you're doing is going to be done to you. Uh, and it sort of has surprised me that there isn't more restraint because you have to assume that the tables will, in fact, turn from time to time. And, and uh, of course, you can now find quotes on both sides of this Supreme Court issue uh, from from the same people who years ago were saying it was a sacred right of the Senate, and now they're saying no, 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 we can't vote, and and vice versa. It is uh, that that's surprising to me that that people don't seem to realize that whatever weapon they use is likely to be used against them in a few years. The reason
1: for that, Angus, is that it's human nature to focus on the immediate gratification and to be able to defer. Uh, any consideration of future actions. So a senator who wants to gain an immediate advantage will be aware that the tactic he's using may be used in the future by the opposition, but that's distant, that's vague, that's uncertain. He doesn't even know or she doesn't even know whether they're going to be in the Senate at that time. They don't know what the issue is. So the focus tends to be on getting what you want in the immediate context in which you're operating and thinking about the future of the country, of the people, of the institutions of the United States tends to be, while
0: while vaguely there, not a motivating factor for
1: people who act in this way.
0: Well, and, you know, that's so true. Uh, You can apply that in all kinds of areas, the budget, uh, climate change, infrastructure funding I mean essentially it it's it's uh, it's all about the two-year election cycle and and uh, it is it's it is, it is frustrating because it's hard to do things that uh, won't take effect for five or ten years and that I get but but you know we shouldn't it's not it's not that these particular group of politicians are particularly short-sighted it's it is human nature as you say and and the uh, the burdens of an immediate vote are clear, and the benefits may be ten years, fifteen, or twenty years hence. And uh, as I said to a friend the other day, uh, who does their who did their book report for Sunday night? I mean, that's that's just who we are as people. But it can have long term bad consequences. That's for sure.
1: Well, but uh, the point I would make is, while that is the case of human nature. Uh, we elect people who we believe and hope are leaders who who will have vision beyond the immediate effect. It, it is a fact of human nature that the solution to every problem contains within it the seeds of a new problem. And those who are genuine leaders can look beyond the immediate effects of what's occurring and see what the consequences will be in a secondary, tertiary, or in a future way. And that includes uh, uh, a, a loss of integrity and public esteem for the institution that they're part of and and ought to be proud of. Unfortunately, uh, uh, that hasn't been the case recently. And, and, and what I think we need are uh, uh, more leaders who will be willing to look to the national interest in the future, think about future generations, think about the next Senate, think about not just their children, but their grandchildren and beyond, because that's the only way you're going to get, I, I believe, a, a proper uh, attitude and approach to dealing with things like Supreme Court nominations and other critical factors for the nation. But you've,
0: you've been in a position that I'm now in, and you know that Part of that has to involve uh, bringing along your constituents. I, I firmly believe that part of the responsibility of being in one of these jobs is to, is to try to uh, uh, get across to your constituents why you're making these decisions and why the short-term decision may not be the best one. But, uh, you know, we're in, in, in some ways the Senate or the Congress is polarized because the public is polarized. Uh, and, and that
1: that, is, that's right you know, That's right, Angus but I, I think one of the answers to the comment made by your colleague about what's in the water in Maine I, I think we're very fortunate first of course to be Americans but especially to have been born and raised in Maine uh, because one of the benefits of a small state and, and I mean both a relatively small population uh, 1,300,000 and no major concentrations of population is mostly small towns, that uh, public officials like yourself, like Susan, uh, can get around the state quite a lot. I returned to Maine every weekend when I was in the Senate until I became majority leader. I traveled around. I went to every high school in Maine, to every county, to every town. I'm sure you and Susan do the same thing now. And there is an immense amount of personal contact that you are able to have with your constituents Hear directly from them that a senator from New York or California or Florida uh, can't possibly hope to do in terms of the total population. And I think one of the reasons why we've had such good and effective representation in Maine, uh, for Maine in Washington for over a period of time, is the immediacy, the 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 continuous contact, the continuous input that comes from people in the state. One of the most striking things, Angus, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is I would sit in the Senate, particularly when I was Senate Majority Leader, working 14 hours a day and thinking that the whole world was watching what we <laughs> were doing on this amendment. And then I'd get back to Maine on Saturday, and I'd find that the ordinary guy in Fort Fairfield or Callis or Rumford didn't even know about that, but had other things on their mind, their their, their children's education, their their mother's health, and so forth and so on. And it's a great corrective to the tendency of people to think of themselves in the center of power and think that everybody's focused on what they're doing and to lose sight of the realities of life for the ordinary citizens that we
0: represent. Well, and and the people of Maine certainly don't let you do that. And I think you're absolutely right. When I'm out around and, you know, visiting schools and factories and on Main Streets, the point about it being a relatively small state—it's amazing the number of people that come up and say, "Oh yeah, you you spoke at my daughter's high school graduation," or "or uh, you sent my son a note when he got to be an Eagle Scout." I mean, there's a kind of personal contact. The other thing that people are surprised—and I think email has accelerated this—I get now between 1,500 and 2,000 individual messages from people in Maine every week, uh, mostly email. And, uh, you know, they don't have any trouble letting you know. And that ranges everything from please help me find my lost Social Security check to, you know, how are you going to vote on a nuclear on the Iran nuclear deal or funding NATO or whatever? I mean, we're it's amazing how how close contact we are, in part because of uh, of the technology.
1: That's right. I think it's one way in which technology is helpful. As you know, of course, technology is neutral and can be used in negative ways. But I think anything that improves communication between members of the public and elected officials is a good thing for both. It, it, it tends to remind the elected official uh, of what is or is not important to individual citizens as opposed to the whole focus on the, the, the official himself and what he or she is doing at the the immediate time, uh, I think it's a great thing, really. A burden, uh, I think, for people to plow through all of that. I'm not sure how you do it. Uh, I used to have trouble with mail uh, when I was there, and, of course, that was long before the email, which opened up opportunities for everybody. But anything that improves communication between the public and elected officials in the Democratic Society, in my judgment, is going to be helpful.
0: Well, let me uh, let me just change this up. well first let me ask how do you how do you see the Supreme Court thing playing out do you think the Republicans will feel pressure and go ahead and have hearings or do you think they're just going to tough it out and uh, and uh, let the electoral chips fall where they may in uh, in November
1: uh, it's hard to predict uh, Angus because we can't foresee what's going to happen in the other aspects of the political arena the fight for the nomination for the Uh, for the presidency. But my guess is that uh, they're pretty well dug in and will not consider the nomination. Uh, My guess also is they're going to come to regret that, uh, because if a Democrat is elected president, and and I personally think that's likely, obviously I'm not, don't purport to be objective on it, uh, uh, they're going to be faced with a very, very tough situation uh, in terms of uh, dealing with Supreme Court nominees for the next four or eight years
0: well and they could look back uh, wistfully at uh someone like judge uh, justice garland who's uh, uh by all appearances and i haven't i've just started to, to learn more about him i hope i think i'm going to meet with him next week or week after next uh but uh there they may look back and say gee that was uh, that was a guy we we wanted to have uh if indeed the uh, democrats elected president so it's uh It's a little bit of a risk either way,
1: I think. Well, a few of the Republican Republican senators already have said that they thought it'd be a good strategy to wait and see, and if a Democrat is elected president, then to take up Garland in a lame duck session, but they were quickly uh, shot down by their own colleagues. Uh, My guess is they will consider resurrecting that idea uh, in the event uh, of a Democrat being elected president.
0: And in that case, you're talking about a true lame duck session after the election and between the spring right. of the new yeah. president and the new, the new Senate. Uh, completely different subject. You were the grand marshal of the New York St. Patrick's Day parade. Tell, that must have been a cool experience. It
1: was very interesting. First off, I didn't realize it when I accepted but it was about a full-time job for several weeks. I went to a lot of dinners, receptions. Press conferences, announcements on the day of the parade. I went to three different breakfasts. Uh, it was
0: really cool. <laughs> you must have, you must have felt like you must have felt like you were back in politics, man. You were, uh, you were exactly working the rubber chicken circuit. That's exactly where I felt, but it was
1: really a wonderful experience. I, I incidentally walking along. First off, there's 150 thousand people who march in the parade. I, I've marched in a lot of parades. I've never been one where there were 150,000 people in the audience. But this one, 150,000 <laughs> marched in the parade. 1.5 million uh, watched the parade live, and then it's televised to many more millions. But I have to tell you, Angus, so many people along the way yelled to me. You know, one guy said, Bangor, Maine, <laughs> waved in <laughs> And the guy oh, yelled, I knew I knew you in South Portland because you're walking up a street and the people are right on both sides. So for me, it was a great thrill. I enjoyed it. My my daughter and my wife and members of our family walked along. Uh, the crowds were very, very friendly. And
0: uh, as I said, a lot of main connections on the way. Oh, that's terrific. Well, George, thank you so much. And thanks for your continued leadership. And uh, your voice is important to us and and. Uh I know I speak for uh, probably not everybody at Maine uh, because we all have varying opinions, but uh, we sure are proud of you, and and, uh, I appreciate your willingness to contribute on these issues from time to time. It means a lot uh, to our state. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Angus. I want to thank Senator George Mitchell again for joining us on Inside Maine. Thank you for being with us, and uh, keep in touch. This is Inside Maine, Angus King.